It was a spirited, wickedly articulate 71-year-old named Jane, a lawyer like my father, who had turned my favorite Luddite into a texting monster. I'm here in the Grotto Pod with Diana Cap. Um, this is Susie Gerhard, and welcome to our chat today. Diana is going to talk about her journalism career, which has been really interesting. She's been writing about tech, culture, education, entrepreneurs, women, and things that happen to her friends, her neighbors, and her family, which she says has gotten her into trouble at times. I'm hoping we can go into the trouble a little bit at some point. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to find her work, you can look in the New York Times, California Sunday Magazine, Oprah, OutsideESPN.com, and many more places. I love your recent piece about your 84-year-old father's new girlfriend. Can I get you to read this opening section? It was a spirited, wickedly articulate 71-year-old named Jane, a lawyer like my father, who had turned my favorite Luddite into a texting monster. Jane is my father's girlfriend, in quotes, a term that feels preposterous for someone who wears orthopedic shoes and travels with a baggie of bran let alone spent the last 61 years utterly entwined with my mother. But yes, I have arrived at a life phase in which my 84-year-old father is crushing on a silver-haired grandmother of 14 grandchildren, just as hard as any teenage boy, and just as strange, I'm giddily transitioning into his girlfriend's girlfriend. We don't um, talk a lot about like the poetry of journalism, um, but there are just so many great phrases in this opening. I mean, I guess the first thing I want to ask you is just, what was the Archimedes moment when you were like, oh, this is how I'm going to start this story? I didn't really have an Archimedes moment. I just, I just, this essay just basically poured out of me because I feel so intensely about the whole subject and it's been very much on my mind. It was like the main thing that happened in my life in the latter half of last year. Um, and so it was it was like bubbling up and had to come out. Like everyone who would say, what's going on with you? I would just blurt out, my dad is in love. He's 84. It was just like, it just struck me so intensely. I had to talk about it. And I, I mean, I talk about it as if it was almost as if I was falling in love. It was one of those feelings where it's just, you know, you're overcome with emotion and you're kind of talking about it all the time. And I, I felt that way. That's so interesting. It's, um, it's a, it's a kind of, um, feeling of excitement by proxy. Obviously you have a close relationship with your father. When did you realize it was going to be a piece of writing and realize what kind of piece of writing it was going to be? I once heard the modern love editor talk about how he, you know, gets so many submissions, but honestly, people, most people just have one modern love in them. You know, this is your big story. And I think this felt that way to me. It was, it, I didn't end up sending it to Modern Love. I sent it to a newer column called Rites of Passage, which I'd been really interested in because I love that idea of sort of life turning points. And I felt like this was definitely such a major life turning point for me. And because I conceived of it in that way as a turning point and that essay kind of came to mind, that, you know, that column came to mind, I decided to write it. And I didn't even, when I was writing the essay, I wasn't even positive that I would be able to send it. I knew it was going to be an issue 
um, how personal it was and whether that was going to fly. But I figured I just would write it, and it you know definitely felt good just to write down all the thoughts I had. I I wanted I wanted to save all those thoughts. I felt like I also knew it was like a fleeting moment. I wasn't going to feel that way forever, and their relationship wasn't going to be new like that forever. It's great that you wrote it before you had really an exact place for it, or at least that's the way I interpreted what you just said. And I think that speaks to the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which was the bravery of putting something like this on paper, you know, how you gave yourself permission, but you can, you can feel that it's something that like, maybe people aren't going to want to talk about, you know, there's a sort of a taboo of talking about our, our parents' internal lives, um, right. which they, when we're younger, in some ways keep away from us. Um, when you realized it was going to be a publication, tell me a little about that permission process between you, your father, yourself. Well, I sent the essay into the Rites of Passage editor before I showed it to my father, and in fact, before I showed it to anyone in my family. I did show it to my husband, and he really liked the essay, and I showed it to one or two people at the grotto. And once they accepted it, which was really immediate, I wasn't even that nervous initially. I, I guess I kind of had this feeling that my dad would be okay with it. And I kind of overestimated how okay he would be with it. Because first, after I sent it to him, I sent it to the both of them on email. And I titled the email like a test. And I said, you know, this is your one of your first tests as a couple. Like, how are you going to respond to this? I, you know, I'm really excited. I would love to run this. I think it's moving. You know, would you guys go for this? And I didn't hear back from my dad for, you know, two days on email. And so then I was really worried. And then when he called me back, I knew it wasn't good because that was something he needed to discuss with me. And... He's, you know, he felt that I portrayed him as, quote unquote, a ditz because I, you know, kind of, I poke fun at the fact that he's a Luddite and he's now this texting maniac. And, you know, I do caricature him to some degree because he's so caricature-able. He is so adorable. And when you're picking out incidents for an essay like this, you pick out ones that really make the point of, in this case, I wanted to talk about how precarious my dad's life felt after my mom died and how much he did not seem to me like someone who was going to have an easy time being on his own. He, They'd had a very entangled relationship and he was pretty dependent on her for and she was dependent on him. It was interdependence. Um, but he he definitely seemed to me like he was gonna he was gonna struggle. And then a couple of other things that he wasn't happy with was he did say, you know, it's no one's business what goes on in the bedroom. And I don't love how I don't know that it characterizes the sadness that I felt about mom, you know, in the way that that it should. And I guess because the essay was about the, you know, hope and moving forward, I hadn't dwelled on the loss and the sadness. And I think for me, too, it was such a given, the loss and the sadness my dad felt, that I didn't even feel the need to really write it down. 
deeply. And so I could understand what he was saying. And so he, anyway, we got off the phone and basically I said, it was not going to happen. Forget it. I'm not doing it. Okay, dad, I understand. I, I respect you. But I was upset. And I told my husband and he, you know, right away said, you cannot just let this go. You got to fight for this one because it's a great essay. It's so hopeful. So many people will benefit from, you know, there's so many old people out there, people living longer and they'll, you know, they'll be inspired by this story of possibility. So, so I wrote my dad and Jane a long note and I basically just said, you know, I'm willing to work with you and I think you're not reading this right. I think this is a story that's really uplifting and I'm so full of admiration for the two of you, you know, all that. But I was, I think I was pretty persuasive. And then the note that I got back was from Jane. And I'm going to, I brought the note because I'm going to read you a little bit of it if you want, because it's amazing. Yes, please. It actually turned out, it was such a pivotal moment in our relationship because First of all, you know, Jane had taken the lead on the response, which I thought was was kind of interesting. And um, I also kind of knew once it came from Jane and if she was okay with it, then it was going to be okay with my dad. But she starts the note and she says, Dear Diana, this is how I think of your dad, colon. It's a long list. Distinguished, insightful, handsome, sexy. And then in parentheses, she says, yes. Loving, caring, thoughtful, funny, cute, smart, adorable. It goes on. Gentle and gentlemanly, respectful, dignified, generous, kind, open, principled, moral, curious, loyal. So when I read your story the first time, I thought, no, this is not the man I know, admire, and love. And she felt she felt that I had poked too much fun at kind of the qualities like, you know, his khaki pants sagging off his bum or the bag of brand that he carries around, his orthopedic shoes, and the fact that, you know, he would be unable to, you know, serve himself breakfast because my mom had basically left his Cheerios poured for him if she ever went out of town. So, and she, but then she goes on in this email to basically say, well, for, here's the best part. She says, the sex references are non-issues here. Your dad may feel otherwise. When I first told a friend that I was seeing your dad and that he was 84, she said, you know, even over 80, they still want sex. I said, I hope so. So this note was first that list of the ways she felt about my dad just I mean, I had like tears pouring down my face when I thought someone felt that way about him. And then that she was so modern in her take on sex. And anyway, I just loved her for it. I just thought she's so direct and cool. And and then she goes on in the note to basically say, far be it from me to, to do editing, but I'm just going to point out some things to you. And, you know, you do as you see fit. She, she, so she... I don't know. She was so deft and totally diplomatic. And the note was so warm and and it was so, had so much belief in me. Um, Anyway, so I just, 
then we started this whole like note exchange and had my dad CC'd on it about, I was just like, I'm so overwhelmed by your note. You're so amazing. It was like a love fest that was going on. And in the end, you know, my dad just said, you know, I'm okay with it. And, and, and I did agree to make a couple of small changes. Like I, there was something about like the timing of when he told me when they were moving in together that, you know, that bothered him. But I, and I, and I changed that and the editor was really cool about a couple of these things. So you ended up not really making changes because honestly, it's about your perspective of their relationship. So really what, what legitimate big picture changes could they reasonably ask for other than not to publish it? So that was great of them. But again, you had given it to the editor before (laughs) you'd given it to the publication before you showed them. So essentially it's just getting them on board with your idea that this is, this is a piece about love and hope um and not meant to diminish them in any way and making them making them kind of see it through your eyes but i did always have it in my mind that even though they i'd already sent it to them that it was going to be contingent on my getting approval and i'm sure that you know every type of sort of personal essay that comes into the paper they have this issue where it needs to get cleared with the people who are in in the piece so I and I felt so strongly that was I said to the editor I need to make a couple of changes and if and if I can't make those changes then I'm not going to run the essay because I really can't do that out of respect for my dad. So I had an experience um early in my journalism career where there was a a beautiful piece that a guy wrote about the end of his marriage and I was so young mid 20s I didn't even think about the idea that the person being written about would see things a completely different way. Um, but like your piece, it just had so much beauty and truth from his perspective um, that I just assumed everyone would love it. Well, of course, <laughs> I did hear from other people involved who weren't happy. I think the thing I've basically learned in my journalism career is that pretty much nobody ever likes what you write about them. It doesn't matter how I I have this one incredible story about uh, one of the big first features that I ever wrote, and it's still one of my favorite pieces of writing, was about egg freezing. And it was way in the beginning. It was honestly the first article that was really ever written about egg freezing. And I happened to get this woman that was freezing her eggs at Stanford to open up to me and she agreed to even you know use her name in the piece and I I worked so hard on this piece and I became really friendly with the fertility doctor that was pioneering this approach down at Stanford and the day that I met her she was she was wearing sort of a pink sweater and some pearls and so I described her as kind of a preppy looking woman with a blonde bob well she does have a blonde bob but she she just in the end that was the only thing that she focused on after the piece came out it was you know a huge like 6,000 word piece that she was portrayed in in many ways and anyway she just said it's unforgivable that you describe me as preppy I'm so not preppy and 
you know, I probably was wrong because I just caught her on that day and that's how she struck me. But, you know, she's probably some Birkenstock wearing Palo Alto woman. But anyway, I just thought that was funny. I've had, and I've had that experience over and over again. I have had that experience so many times, which is when it became much easier for me to write about film, which is something that is one step away from describing actual people in real life. They feel there's a sort of violence being done to them if if the words used to describe them aren't the exact words they would use. But if you also consider taking photographs of people, they, they'd prefer to be photographed from a particular angle, the particular type of film stock, in a particular lighting situation. But it's one of the challenges, which brings me to the, the question of um, challenges in your journalism career in general. You had said to me a little bit ago that you feel a little lost in journalism right now. So why is that? I guess I... I was so scrappy for so many years. I just chased after stories and I wrote, you know, feature after feature. I I really, my career kind of was really launched at San Francisco Magazine. And that was always a place where I I was a contributing editor and I could, um, they pretty much took any idea that I had. And it was this very casual relationship where I just had to send a couple of sentences or I would sit down to lunch with um, first the editor, Bruce Kelly. And I, and I actually, you know, I've never had an editor since Bruce um, who I connected to that deeply. And it was as easy to kind of share ideas and feel understood and feel that he got my ideas. Anyway, um, when Bruce left and the new editor, John Steinberg came in, it, it, I still had a good platform there, but it wasn't quite the same. And then I just have found lately that I think because the news cycle just moves so quickly and there's so much online everywhere, things move so quickly that to to have a really fresh idea feels almost impossible. And I think partly I need to just start thinking of it in a different way because you're not going to need to break the story. And it's probably going to be almost impossible to break the story at this point, but you just need to help people understand the story. You need to be more of an analyst of issues and trends. And that's a different way of thinking. I I guess nowadays, like the further I've gone on in my career, I'm just a much tougher critic of my ideas. And so I seem to dismiss a lot of ideas. And it's funny, I feel like I have this computer full of little pathways that I've traveled a little of the way down, like stories I've started to chase down, topics I've researched. It's like seeing the inside of a crazy person's brain because there's just so many strands and things in there that never go anywhere. And it's just, it's sometimes I think to myself, God, when someone finds this computer and they look at all this, they'll think I was just like going to my office every day and I was just doing this, but it was never, like nothing was ever seeing the light of day. I feel that way sometimes. It's so interesting for me personally to hear because, you know, most of the writing that I did is in the pre-internet era. So they exist in print archives that are really difficult to find. Whereas you have such a prolific amount of work that is so readily visible that, you know, that brain, we can actually see so many things that you really brought to fruition. And they're long form, incredibly considered stories that really do 
add to our understanding of a topic. One of those stories was the the story about suicide clusters that you wrote for San Francisco Magazine. I believe it's the most read story in the magazine's history. So I'd like to like get into that one a little bit because it does represent, I know that you had a, a first start with that story um, that kind of went nowhere and then you came back to it. So let me, let's hear a little bit about the beginnings and the continuation of that topic with you. I used to poke around sometimes on like local daily papers so I to, to get story ideas. And so I would look at like the Palo Alto Weekly. And I remember back in, you know, 2009 reading about um, two suicides that had happened at Gunn High School. And I don't, and I actually, I have, it's, this isn't the first story I've written about suicide. I also wrote a story about the head of engineering who then became the chancellor of UC Santa Cruz, and she committed suicide um, in this really dramatic way, and I wrote a big piece about that. So I'm not sure how suicide got on my mind or why that caught my eye, but I started doing some poking around, and I was sending notes to some of the people I know that live down around Palo Alto, and there was just such a strange response to those 2009 emails. You know, people just had no interest in talking about it. They were completely squirrely. They didn't even want me asking about what was going on or if they knew anything or knew anyone that had been impacted. And I think at the time, it was just so uncomfortable for this community. It was so raw people really didn't understand what was going on. And there had also been research about the fact that media can impact um, suicide clusters continuing or growing. And so, you know, that message had definitely gotten out and people just said There's, there could be no media. And so I, I just let that go. It was like one more of my little threads that's on my computer of things that I had done a little bit of reporting about. And, and one thing I do find in my career is so many things do come back around. So you have to keep in mind it's not all wasted work even when you do some lead work that goes nowhere because often things do come back around. And in this case it was you know, I heard another story, maybe on NPR, about another suicide that had happened in Palo Alto. And this time, I now I had kids that were that age. I had kids in high school. And I was just really interested in the whole issue of um, stress in our schools. And I had thought a lot about private schools. That was another thing that I had done a big story about for San Francisco Magazine, like the escalation in the private schools. And um, so anyway, I, but this time when I reached out to some other people in Palo Alto, people were much more forthcoming. And I, I really focused on the teens themselves, finding teenagers who would talk to me. And I would, I, I probably drove down to Palo Alto like 50 times, you know, for the after school hours and like hanging around in different Starbucks and getting kids to give me the names of other kids. And, and it really just, I really did feel like I was learning and beginning to understand like how a lot of these kids felt. And again, it's not, you can't say that that was 
like a characteristic sampling that was any kind of perfect sampling. But I, I was definitely getting this vibe, strong vibe about how just anxious kids were and how much the environment was impacting them and how, and what it was like to be living in the, in the shadow of a suicide cluster. It was impacting like every moment of their life. And I, I opened the story with this scene that when I heard the story about the scene, I just was so taken. Basically, it was this night that the kids were all at a party and one of the kids disappears for a little while. And these kids were so amped up in fear that there was someone always at any moment among them that could be going off to take their life. That when this kid disappeared, within 10 minutes, the whole party disbanded and went running down the street to the railroad tracks um, because all these suicides were happening at the by the Caltrain. Um, and it turns out that this kid was, you know, peeing. He was in the bathroom. And so it just it just struck me, like, how they're living in this heightened state of this could seriously happen to any of us at any moment. That was how the kids felt. That's how bad it was. I think that's why your story was such, um, such an important story with a really new point of view, because it, it really conveys the sense of being inside the teenagers' minds. Like, you have other people that are talking, you have adults that are coming up with policy solutions, including the Dauber family who became integral in another Palo Alto-related situation. But you really, you feel what their mindset is like and the steps that they're taking to change the situation for themselves. It's almost like those films, like, I don't really want to say Larry Clark films, but films that really give you a peek inside teenage brain, the brain of someone with limited experience that is in a, a critically difficult situation, trying to claw their way out of it. Um, it's a really, it's for that literary perspective reason alone, it's a really great piece of journalism. But I'm curious about some of those um, solutions they were coming up with, both adults, school board, students, teachers. In the years since your story came out, um, have any of those changes made a difference? First of all, there there was another suicide that happened maybe a year ago. Um, and I haven't been in super close contact with this whole topic. I've, you know, I kind of went away from it after that piece. But I, I mean, even simple solutions that, that were trying to be implemented became unnecessarily complicated. Like there was this whole issue that sleep has a really big impact on the mental health of teenagers. And it definitely does. Nobody disputes that. But they had this zero period that was like this early morning class that kids could take at 7.20 a.m. And I think some of the kids liked it because it freed up their afternoons to, to have more time for sports. But the school board, there was a push to eradicate that period and, you know, have school start later. And it actually ended up being this group of students that fought for that period to remain. And I think it was implemented for a while. They got rid of zero period, but then it since has come back. Um, 
it's so bureaucratic. It's, you know, it's a school system. So some of the kinds of things and, and these issues, there's privacy involved in how much schools can know about, you know, tracking the mental health of their students. Um, there's financial consideration of like how many counselors they can afford to have and whether the kids will even use them in school. So I think I came away feeling like a lot of appreciation for the complexity of the situation and not feeling like, oh, Palo Alto isn't doing anything. I feel like they really were grappling, but I recognize how just incredibly multi-layered it is to to understand an issue like this. Did it impact any of the choices you made as a mom of three children, how you, how you were raising them, the environments that you placed them in? There was one line um, in an interview with this woman, Kathleen Blanchard, who had lost her son. She actually lost her son in the first suicide cluster. And so she's become a little bit more vocal. Like now it seems that people never talk when they have no distance, but she had a bit of distance. And so she's gotten involved in the issue. And she said that she wished that she had listened more closely to her son. And I said, what do you mean when you say listen closely? And she said, you can't just listen to hear the notes. You need to listen and hear the music. And listen and listen closely. And I think that is something that has very much stayed with me. Um, that it's, there's kind of a bigger picture than just like the single incidents that your kids are telling you about. And it's like a feeling and a hunch that you have about your kids. Um, and I think I've paid a lot more attention to it because of that. But I still feel that our kids are growing up in one of the most difficult times and places that a kid could ever grow up. And the pressures on kids and, and on my kids. I mean, they're fully in that. And, you know, as much as I maybe learned from that piece, it's it's so difficult to fight against this whole structure that's in place with the push to the colleges and, you know, kids that themselves have a lot of ambition and perfectionism. It's It's a really tricky thing as a parent, but I do think I've learned to listen and not try to fix it's a lot more about that they have someone who's listening and noticing there's so much messaging directed directly at them in the world that the environment just is what it is you know there's so many things that they're combating i remember in the palo alto story it was always like you know well it's the parents putting on the pressure. No, it's the school putting on the pressure. No, it's the college's fault because they're the ones who are, you know, taking so few kids and expecting so much. So it, it was, you know, it just pings around whose fault it is. And it's, it's all of the, those pressures are impacting the kids. And, you know, that's why it's complicated. Add it up. So another piece you directed my attention to was the story related to, um, education, you've done a ton of education reporting. Um, but I know you've been involved in education and education funding, not just as a reporter, but as someone who's put your own funds and a- 
activist time into it. Um, so both of those things, how you're interested in this issue in your own life, but also I'd love to hear a little bit more of that um, story about the I Have a Dream Foundation's college program, which guaranteed college tuition to students from a particular at-risk school. Um, one girl that got that promise didn't fulfill her um her educational dream until 20 years later. And at age 38 was when she finally started going to Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, so two questions there, you know, that story and also your own personal investment in this issue. I found out about this particular young woman that I profiled for the New York section of the New York Times. Um, I learned about her because one of my very good friends, he was the program manager that had this class of kids and took them through junior high and high school. And so for about eight years, he had day in and day out worked with this class of young students, mostly black from Anacostia, which is a very difficult neighborhood in Southeast DC, which is where I'm from. And I just became, he is a great storyteller and it is an incredibly fascinating story because he has kept up with those kids now for 25 years. And so starting from the time we were in school, which was right after he left that program, I heard stories about, you know, him taking these kids up to the Adirondacks to a river and taking a whole bunch of kids canoeing who had, you know, never even been in water and just being so struck by some of these images and these crazy stories. And this woman to Neil that I ended up writing about is someone who he's, it's, it's almost like a daughter to him. And her story is... It's just incredible. She, you know, she stood out as a young person. She had all this artistic talent. She always wanted to work in fashion. She made it to this high school for the arts, which, you know, at the time, my friend felt like, wow, she's made it. Like, she's the fact that she got to Duke Ellington, this selective magnet school where all kids go to college. He felt at the time that that was it, and she was going to really get on a track. But instead of going to college, she went to work at the Safeway because she was so overwhelmed by all the psychological stress that she had from a mom who had been a drug addict and all the violence she had witnessed and her own mental health issues. And, you know, so she kind of went, you know, her path begins there. And then she, but then when he would tell me about her at the Safeway, she became like the top Safeway cashier checkout in the, you know, in the whole region. And she's, you know, running the whole floral department and making it really artistic. And it was something about the fire inside this girl and the fact that she had had this promise to pay for her college, but she wasn't able to take advantage of it is just... It's so mind-boggling. And most of the kids in that program weren't able to take advantage of it. So anyway, I, I think I'm, I'm really interested in college access, and that's the kind of work I've done on my own time in education, sitting on the board of an organization called Scholar Match. And I just think 
you know, getting kids to college is a way that you can really change trajectories. Um, but so, you know, this young woman, Tanil, she, in such a roundabout way and just through so, like through just fiat, she ended up getting into Fashion Institute of Technology. But at this time she was, you know, in her 40s. Um, but it was, it was just a miracle. And it was amazing to watch and to watch my friend and his pride. And then I, you know, really got to know her. Um, anyway, I just got so sucked into that story. I became just completely compelled by this woman and her drive and all she'd overcome. Yeah. And I recommend anyone listening to actually seek out that story and read it in the New York Times, correct? Yes. Yeah. It just has so many incredible details. Um, I don't know if you can remember any of those details, but you have a real gift as a journalist for really creating that visual picture for why this specifically is a story that a reader wants to immerse themselves in. And I remembered with fashion in particular as an avenue um, that you had colors, um, sewing terminology. Do you remember any of that in particular? That I did get immersed in, you know, her sketch notebook and the, and the way these black, she always drew black models and that's so different than what you see anywhere and she she they had a look to them and she had a way a style of clothes and I was really interested in it and I I went with her like to a sewing shop where she was trying to pick up some of the things that she needed and she had this mannequin in her in the living room of the place where she was staying and you know I watched her like bunching the fabric and doing the pinning and, you know, it was like watching a master at work and, you know, fashion is cool. And the fact that she had all this talent and just, you know, knew what she was doing. I did get into the details, which is, and in journalism, there's no way to write well about anything unless you really are immersed in it and you, and you understand it in like, like, I feel like I have to burrow into all the information and just be so have it like infuse every cell in my body and then I can write about it like with a command and really get detail and make things come alive and you can't fake that you just can't and what's really cool is that you you immerse yourself you really understand the topic but you come back out from the reader's perspective and give us each of those details literally so that we can see them. You don't make assumptions that, oh, we understand this world. You know, you you really draw those things out. Um, finally, I want to get to this incredible piece that you did for Moore Magazine, um, also on education, where you went to Afghanistan. Um, I know you took someone important with you. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that process? I went to Afghanistan with a British physician, a tall, willowy, blonde woman who has now built 50 schools in Afghanistan. And I learned about the story from a friend of mine who was, for a time, had been working on a film project about women in all parts of the developing world. And in her research, she had met this woman. And I think what struck me about her is the problem of lack of girls' education um, in places like Afghanistan is such a massive problem, and it's happening in so many parts of the world. 
And here was a woman basically my age and, you know, with the same kind of like professional training, not that I'm a physician, but just, you know, one higher degree and that she had just one by one started to do this work and not thought about, you know, well, I can't fix everything. She just thought I can, I can fix what I can. I can, I can move the ball forward. And so I was really struck by this woman. And my mom is a, she was a 25 years a teacher in a school in Washington. And I just got it in my mind. It would be so cool to take this trip with my mom. And she, she went to some event where she also heard this woman talk and she was moved by her and she didn't even think about it. She just said, I would love to go. Absolutely. And I will remember for the rest of my life, it was one of the most incredible experiences I ever had with my mom. It was tough too. We were sleeping on the floor in these villages and, you know, it was risky. There was all kinds of warnings from um, different U.S. agencies telling us that it wasn't a good time to travel to Afghanistan. And we had to trust this woman that, you know, her situation was different because she'd been so connected to the locals for some time that she was safe. Anyway, um, it was just to go and be able to see that part of the world and go with someone who knows it so well and be taken into homes. Um, and just, I just, these images of these little girls with their scarves over their heads and they all have blue, blue eyes and dark hair. And it's such a visual, it's such a visual scene. And, um, you had an incredible photographer along with you. So um, that story had beautiful photographs to illustrate exactly what you were saying, but you also painted the picture really well. I remembered um, just painting the the vibe of what it's like to enter into the tea situation that she would encounter with each new community that she entered. Yeah, I'm actually right now, I'm working on a children's story about this woman, Sarah, and her 50 schools. Sarah and the Blue Schools, I'm calling it. And one of the the great scenes for a kid's book is these every, you know, the tradition in Afghanistan is no business happens before a meal is, is had together. And so, you know, we would have make three or four stops just in our morning as when we were going to visit different schools and the village elders that were involved in those schools. And at each one, we would have to sit through this major meal with crazy foods like fried swallows heads and um, you know, these massive breads and mutton and oily rice and walnut tea. And anyway, it was, it was always really daunting to just make even a dent in this. Um, and I always felt like such a responsibility because I was one of the people in the group and, you know, Sarah would just look at me like, help me with this situation. Um, but anyway, that, that is, I think we'll make a great scene in a kid's story. There was a lot of eating and eating and eating. You did your part. <laughs> you made your contribution. Um, so is that the book that you have coming out in the fall? No. The oh. book I have coming out in the fall is called Girls Who Run the World, and it's um, a book for tween girls. It's 30 
profiles of female CEOs. They are all the founders of the companies that they run. So they're all entrepreneurs. And that's another topic that I've written a lot about is, you know, cool women at work. And I was walking home one day listening to the How I Built This podcast. And I was listening to Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, who's, you know, she's like the first self-made female billionaire in the U.S. And she did this with this, like, underwear that holds in your bulge, um, which is kind of crazy onto its own. But her story of, you know, sneaking in a rack to Neiman Marcus when they, you know, when she didn't like how they displayed her Spanx and, you know, going around to these factories and convincing these these men, all men, you know, to make this crazy product that she'd invented when she was just completely a nobody. As I listened to that walking home from work, I just couldn't stop thinking to myself, everything I need to teach my 13-year-old daughter is like encapsulated in this woman's story. Like she's so badass. She never takes no for an answer. She's thinks big and she's really confident of her of her ideas and even when people are skeptical when it's so hard to keep going anyway so I and I thought but my daughter would never listen to this podcast so it would be cool to write these stories and um that's what I did I can't wait to hear about them um so thanks so much for for being here on GrottoPod today Diana Thanks for having me, Susie. It was fun to talk to you. Cool. You're very welcome. And that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by me, Susie Gerhard, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner here at the Grotto, with help from Kristen Cosby. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe, if you like us, to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.